so much, worship team. If you have your Bibles, will you please turn with me to the book of Romans today? And if you need a pew Bible, we have those available for you. We'd love for you to follow along in the scriptures. And that's found on page 939. We begin a new series of messages today. Yesterday when we were in our car, I heard one of my youngest voice cry out, Daddy, are we done with Malachi? <laughs> and he was very happy when I told him, yes, we are. And uh, I told him what we were going to next. I heard Pastor Matt did a wonderful job of concluding our series in Malachi last week. And thank you, Matt, for ministering to our hearts through the word. You know, if you came to the New Testament with a, with a fresh mind, and what I mean by a fresh mind is if you came to the New Testament having not read it before, you would immediately discover that page in the center that says New Testament, and you would turn over and you would find four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you would immediately conclude after reading those that these four Gospels are all about Jesus Christ, his person and work, yes? You would, you would notice that they are titled what? Gospels. That's the first four books of your New Testament. And you would be filled with facts about Jesus, about his ministry, his 33 and a half years of life, his three and a half years of public ministry. But you would be left with questions about those facts. You ever notice when you read the Gospels, if it's Jesus teaching or it's one of the Gospel writers, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three Gospel writers who deal with a lot of the same material but from different vantage points they have different audiences they have a different theme so they use various narratives from the life of christ to help along the theme of their particular books but have you ever noticed when reading those you find okay i know what happened but i'm not sure exactly why i'm not sure exactly how that story fits in the whole redemptive theme of the person and work of Jesus. Well, then you flip over to the fifth book, and you're in the book of Acts, the only history book in our New Testament. And now we know what the church, the early church, after Pentecost, did with those facts. What did they do with them? They gospelized them. They started sharing them with everybody. So if I'm reading the history book of the New Testament, I assume that that's what believers are supposed to be doing, Yes? They're supposed to be talking about the facts of the person and work of Jesus. We're supposed to be gospelizing. You may not have used that word recently. It just simply means to herald good news. But we're still left with, aren't there some things that we just still don't understand? There was a survey done, and this survey has been done multiple times with Christians, and the question that was asked these Christians why are you not more faithful in sharing the gospel with your friends, family, neighbors, and acquaintances? And the number one reason given for not sharing the gospel probably doesn't surprise you because you probably relate. It's this. I'm afraid to share the gospel because I might be asked a question I don't know how to answer. You ever felt that way? Perhaps you've been in a moment like that where... A question is given about the gospel facts that you just rehearsed. Perhaps you shared the Romans road and you said it quickly and fastly because your palms were sweaty and your heart rate was up. And then when you're done, they throw a question at you and you're like, yeah. 
That's what I was afraid of. Well, comes 21 books. After the book of Acts, 21 books. They're called epistles. No, these are not the wise of the apostles. Epistles mean letters. And we have 21 of them. And their purpose, hear this, is to explain the purpose, the, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, these 21 letters tell us why and wherefore. Here's because, here's what this means. And our first one, the longest letter of our New Testament, the book of Romans, explains the person and work of Christ. Now, you're already there, so if you just look at the last verse of the book of Acts, you'll see how this comes together. I want you to see Acts 28, the last verse, Paul is in prison in where? Okay, Rome, he's in Rome, he's in jail, he's in house arrest, there in Rome. In verse 30, it says he, that's Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching what? Are you looking at it? About the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Are you wondering, what did he teach about? We have it. We have 13 books that he wrote, or epistles that he wrote, and there's not one letter that more fully explains the gospel, more thoroughly explains the gospel than the book of Romans. And so as we launch out on this study, please don't fear. We will take this in bite sizes. We'll probably take a few chapters, have a break for another series of messages, and return to it. We will not preach from Romans as long as great Pastors like D. Martin Lloyd-Jones did, that great British pastor who preached from Romans for 14 years, and he was just in chapter 15 and retired. <laughs> he never finished the series. Can you imagine that? You were born, and you were in junior high, and he was still in Romans. We won't do that. But we are going to settle in and let the Spirit of God shape us with explaining the person and work of Christ. And I want to encourage you as a believer, if you've ever felt... Number one, I, I, I need to grow in my understanding of the gospel and learning to preach the gospel to my own heart. I, I, learn, I need to learn how to explain better the person and work of Christ to those seekers who have legitimate questions about those facts that I can so quickly throw out there. This book is for you. Romans is for you. These first seven verses that I would like to deal with this morning before we celebrate Lord's table is going to be a challenge because it's one of Paul's famous run-on sentences. So here from verse 1 all the way to verse 7, he doesn't even take a breath and he packs so much in these seven verses and I simply want to introduce our series on the book of Romans with four truths that you can take down in your handout that are going to be really dealt with throughout this book in explaining the person and work of Jesus. But I want us to see them this morning. And I want you to grasp this, if you haven't already, that this is the book that most thoroughly explains the gospel in all of your Bible. Some have called it the cathedral of the New Testament or the cathedral of the whole Bible. It was that golden-tongued first century or second century church father, Chrysostom, who said of the book of Romans, you need to read it out loud to your family twice a week, and then it will begin to shape you. 
Augustine said that we should memorize the book. So here we go. Maybe you should take that as a goal. But this book, this crown of the New Testament, this Mount Everest of the New Testament, we're going to need some help breathing from time to time because the air will become dense, the oxygen will become low. But these are some of the high points, the crystal points, the sparkling points of all of your Bible. So here are these four truths that I want to give you this morning. And you'll notice as we begin our reading, let's read verses 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Here's the first truth. If you're taking notes, the gospel is God's gospel. Can you say that with me? The gospel is God's gospel. One more time. The gospel is God's gospel. You'll notice that phrase at the end of verse 1. It's not used very often in the scriptures, maybe six or seven times. 1 Thessalonians 2 uses it a few times. The importance of that phrase is because sometimes we can think of the gospel as something that was either constructed by religious people or perhaps it is something that, is, that God has claimed do you see it as sourced from God? He introduces himself, of course, as Paul. That's his Greek name. His Hebrew name was Saul. Saul means to ask or asking. Paul means small. There are theories about why he had the name Paul, that Greek name, and many believe that was the name he wanted to express the humility of how the gospel had captured this persecutor of Christians on the Damascus Road. But it was written by a secretary, an amanuensis. They would take down the dictation. And we find in Romans 16 that that person is named Tertius. He wrote down what Paul dictated through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the book of Romans. It was delivered by Phoebe. In Romans 16, Phoebe is named as the one who left Corinth. This is probably where he was at when he wrote the book of Romans. He's in Corinth. And Phoebe brings it in her little handbag, wonder if she knew what she had contained there. But Phoebe was a deacon in the church in Corinth. It was delivered by her, and it came from a city called Sincre. Sincre was known as the red light district of that area. It was a very wicked place. We don't know Phoebe's background and how she came to faith in Christ. But this wonderful moment of Phoebe delivering the gospel the book of Romans, the explanation of the person and work of Christ to these people. This church was planted by someone other than an apostle. We have no record of Paul. He'll say later, as we see next week, he hasn't visited there yet. Probably what happened was the church was planted by Jews that were from Rome, that were at Pentecost. They heard the gospel, and then they came back and planted this church. So the church had basically four stages. This is really important to understanding the book. The first stage was completely Jewish. These were almost exclusively Jewish Christians meeting in Rome when the church was planted. Then as the gospel began to spread, Gentiles were added to the faith and added to the church. But then Emperor Claudius began to want to deal with these 40,000 Jews who had begun to stir up things over someone called Crestus, probably referring to Christ. And he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And then the third stage of the church is it became all Gentiles. And then when Nero, he was actually a decent emperor to begin with before he became 
similar to Hitler, so horribly evil, he invited the Jews back for financial reasons, but he allowed them back, and there was this disruption. The Gentiles didn't want to have open arms to allow these Jewish believers back into the church. And so then we're going to see throughout the book of Romans how he is dealing with the gospel and its unity. And in chapters 14 and 15, he's describing how they should defer to one another and accept one another and welcome one another. But these believers are now being told through this letter that this gospel is being sent to them by the apostle and he has been a servant of Christ. This word servant is not the word deacon, diakonos. It is the word doulos, which means a slave. It's not a word that we like to fixate on for sure. But he's saying, I belong to Jesus. I'm completely his. And I have been given this opportunity to give this message, the gospel of God. I want us to see that this is God's gospel, not Paul's. You say, why is that important? Remember in Galatians 1, Paul said, I didn't make this up. The gospel was given to me by revelation from God. I didn't go and meet with the other Jewish apostles and say, hey guys, I got this idea about a gospel. Want to compare notes? He said, no, I didn't compare it with anybody. This was given to me by God. And so this expression, gospel of God, is to remind us that this good news and that's what the word gospel means. It's used throughout our New Testament, used about 10 times in the book of Romans. It simply means the heralding of good news, but it's whose good news? Whose good news is it? It's God's good news to us. So God has initiated this good news. Now we know the facts of those good news. 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose the third day according to our scriptures. But I want us to be reminded that this gospel is God's. God is mentioned. I think sometimes we miss this when we read the scriptures. So many times through the book of Romans. He is the star of the book. And he is the initiator of coming and redeeming sinful men and women. And so it is God's gospel. So Romans gives us the greatest explanation, the most thorough explanation of the gospel anywhere in our Bibles. First thing I want you to get is we're going to see this over and over again. This is God's gospel. It's his good news. It's not something that we work up ourselves. Was it a nursery rhyme? I don't remember. So I, I just remember hearing the story about the frog that was stuck in a pail and he was about to drown in milk and he kept you know, trying to get up the sides, and he couldn't. And then, then there was this, this tortoise, this uh, turtle that came over and stuck his head over and said, said, what you need to do is keep, keep moving, and you'll create butter, and then you'll be able to climb out. And according to the story, he was successful. He got out of the pail. So now all of you can rest at ease that the frog was saved. But, but, the, but the story, the moral of the story is, some people look at, the gospel or religion or relationship with God like the frog. God helps those who help themselves. And, and if I can just work hard enough, I could earn this. This is God's gospel. This is not something you create. This is not something you do. The good news is that God has acted in history and in time and space. And he has sent his son to redeem his people. 
I want you to see, secondly, that this is not only God's gospel, but this gospel was promised in the Old Testament. Notice verse 2. He said, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the what? Holy Scriptures. You'll notice your, most of your leather binding has that on the title, doesn't it? Holy Bible, right? These are God's set-apart scriptures. And what he's saying is that this is not something new. Now, the Old Testament is concealed, and the New Testament reveals it. We see that. But he's saying that this was something that was prophesied long ago. So it, the Old Testament speaks to this. The Old Testament prophesies this. Hebrews 1, verse 1, you're familiar with this text, says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, son whom he has appointed heir of all things. So the author here is going to point out the relationship between the gospel and the Old Testament. All of the previous revelation points to the gospel. It was promised. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when you open up Matthew 1 and you have a what? Some of you saying, oh no, I'm going to skip to chapter 2. I can't read a genealogy. But what is he saying? He's saying he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. So he gives the genealogical background. Then he gives the geographical background in chapter 2 of Matthew 2. And we should be going, okay. What he's saying is the gospel is not some new thing. It's not some second thing. It's not some plan B. It wasn't though God needed a backup plan when things didn't work out. He's saying the Old Testament actually prophesied that these would happen, that the, the gospel would take place. You know, in the book of Romans alone, you're going to find the Apostle Paul uses over 60 quotations from the Old Testament. It's reminding you that beforehand these things were promised, but he doesn't stop there. Those 60 quotations come from 13 different Old Testament books and from every major section of your Old Testament. So when we talk about our Old Testament, we talk about the writings, we talk about the prophets, we talk about the, the law, rather, and we talk about the, the Psalms or the poetry. He's saying all of those sections, it pointed toward the gospel. So folks, when we hear things that have become even popular today, it's in a very popular book in, in most Christian bookstores, and in a section of that book, a very popular Bible teacher right now, won't help you to mention his name, but he, he's saying what, what Christians need is to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. And basically, that's something we need to just look away from and only look at the New Testament. Folks, do you see a scripture passage like this that, that turns that on its head? It, it says that these things were promised when? Beforehand, in the Holy Scriptures. The same word, scriptures, referring to it, Paul tells Timothy that all of it was God-breathed. And even Peter's talking about Paul's writing later, and he says, you know what, they, they, they don't understand these, and it's causing destructions, just like when, he, when they don't understand the scriptures. I hope we'll not be surprised in our study about how many times the Apostle Paul says this was just like what was said in the Old Testament, and he quotes it. The third thing I want you to see, this third truth, that Romans is the most thorough explanation of the gospel, is the gospel is about a person, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3 and 4. Now this is where we're going to have to take a deep breath, because I'm going to give you a lot in just a short amount of time, because he just gives us all of this in these two verses. 
he says, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's going to say is the gospel isn't just like a set of dry facts. The gospel is a person. The gospel is Jesus. You see, we could go to a place in the scriptures where I ask you, can you go to your favorite spot in the Bible that tells you the facts of the gospel? And maybe you go to a place like 1 Corinthians 15 that says he died on the th- and he died for our sins according to the scriptures and rose the third day according to the scriptures. But where would you go in your Bible if you were asked the best place that describes the person of the Son of God, the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ? This should be one of your favorite places to go. Now, you'll notice, sprinkled in here, all different titles of our Lord. Do you see them here? These are going to be referred to in our study of Romans. But look at them with me. It says, concerning his son. So the first title we have here of our Lord Jesus, he is whose son? Whose son? God. So it's speaking of his deity. It's speaking of his relationship to the Father, that he's eternal. And then he's described as Jesus. We know what this means. The angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. So Savior, this is his relationship to sinners like us. And then Christ, this is the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one, the promised one of the Old Testament. And this is his relationship to fulfilling all those Old Testament covenants or Old Testament positions, I should say, of prophet, priest, and king. He was the anointed one. He fulfilled all of them. So what we have here is son, God's son. We have Jesus, Savior, and we have Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Now, this was used as an acrostic early on, and many commentators believe this was an early confession, that this was a confession of faith, these, these verses, 3 and 4. This was your belief in Jesus Christ and his person. But early Christians, particularly under persecution in Rome, later on, under Nero and further, would use an acrostic, ichthus, to explain their belief in Jesus, who was God's son, the Savior. So they had an acrostic, and you'll see that here. And it had the first letter of each of these words. So you have the iota, which would be Jesus, Jesus. And then you have the chi for Christ. You have the theta for theos, or God. You have the upsilon for son. And then you have the sigma, which would be sater, savior. And so this would be their reminder that you believe that Jesus Christ, God's son, is our savior. It would be their statement of faith. But it was more than that. These were first seen under persecution, as I said to you before. What would happen oftentimes is someone would come up to another person and they didn't know if they were a believer. So what they would do is they would, and this, this acrostic, this is why it's in the fish symbol, is the Greek word ichthus. You've heard of ichthology, perhaps. That's the study of fish. I like to eat fish. I don't know what you call that. But, but ichthus was an acrostic that had the 
the doctrinal beliefs of the believer. And what they would do is sometimes they would take and they would draw something like this. And if the other person then completed it with a semicircle and came back and did this, there was this knowledge. You can tell I can't draw. There was this knowledge that they too were a believer. Ichthus. Jesus Christ, God's Son and Savior. And you'll notice here in our text that he is revealing to us who the person of our Savior is. Not just his acts, but his person. Look again at verse 2. It says that he, I'm sorry, verse 3, it was concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, just hear this real quickly. He gives two descriptors of this person. Number one, he is the son of God. So he's a forever kind of person. And he's also descended from David, so he's a human person. How do you get those two natures in one person? Well, you go back to places like 2 Samuel that predict that David will never have a time where there is not a king reigning on his throne. And then we see that he is a descendant of David, so he has the forever because he's God. He's a descendant of David as predicted. This has to be a being with two natures, both divine and human. And here in this opening salutation, this is one way to start a letter, yes? This opening salutation, he says he is both God and man. But I left out one title, and I want to conclude with that. I hope you notice that I left out a title that is here given for Jesus. We're told that concerning his son, who descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Stay with me here. How can it be said that he was declared to be the Son of God when it already says in verse 3 that he is the Son of God? How can he be declared to be something that he already was? I hope that question's in your mind. If not, I'm trying to put it there. Well, this word declared is not what we mean when we say the word declared. When I say declared, it's kind of like what I'm doing right here this morning. Yes? I'm, I'm saying something. I'm, I'm pronouncing something. I'm preaching something. This word declared, we get our, our English word horizon from. It means to set out the boundaries or to fix something where it's clear. What he's saying is that at the resurrection of Jesus, something was fixated and he got a name that he didn't have before. And you'll notice that this appropriately is just like your ancient Greek text at the last part of the sentence, Jesus Christ our what? Our Lord. You'll notice I left out two words. It says that he was raised from the dead or he was declared to be the son of God in what? What does it say in your text? In power. So what he's saying here is there was a moment where as the eternal son of God, he didn't become the son of God. He was already the son of God. It wasn't like he got adopted as the son of God after his resurrection. That's heresy. He's saying that as the son of God, there was a moment where it was declared he's Lord. And you know when it happened? At his resurrection. In fact, this is the most often quoted Old Testament passage in your Bible from Psalm 110, where David says, 
The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord, Adonai, sit thou on my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. That passage keeps being repeated over and over in our New Testament to remind us that at the resurrection, he got a name. There was horizon, there was a mark off that he didn't have before, and it's this, Lord, I want you to see it in your Bible. Turn to Philippians 2. There are a variety of places we could turn to for you to see this, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse number 8. And being found in, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, now we're in verse 9. So if you're still turning, you've got there, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name? So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, here it is, here's the name. It's not the name Jesus. What's the name? What is it? To the glory of the? This is why, folks, when we get to passages like Romans 10, and maybe you're wondering now, well, what about the spirit of holiness? How did the spirit of holiness make this declared? How did he declare it? Well, he declares it to every human heart when they submit to the lordship of Jesus. That's why in Romans 10, it says it this way. Whosoever shall call on the name of the shall be what? Saved. And it says that you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God had what? Raised him from the dead. You see, this horizon, this new declaration has to do with the climax, the crowning jewel of our Lord's work for us and our redemption and his resurrection from the dead. And then Paul's going to finish this opening by saying, and I've been commissioned by God's grace, and that's the final point. It's all about grace. And he says, I've been commissioned now as a sent one. An apostle means to be sent. The Latin translation of that became what we get our English word missionary from, but maybe you could think of missile, an intercontinental ballistic missile, going where it needs to go. That's exactly what God did with Paul. But he then gives him this opportunity for the sake of the glory of the name of Christ, his lordship, to preach this gospel to the Romans. And this is the same authority. It's right where we started. The same authority that Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven, what did he say? All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and what? Make disciples. Go gospelize. Go tell these facts to everybody. I'm Lord. I have this new title, this new designation. And as a result, this gospel now is ready to be preached in Rome. It's ready to be preached among all nations. This is the opening of the letter. Now, we don't open letters like this, do we? <laughs> I mean, we're like, dear so-and-so. We have a date, we have an address, dear so-and-so. Even we don't like the person, we call him dear. Have you noticed that? And then we sign our name at the end. This is different. Paul starts like traditional letters would in the first century with his name, his office. Oftentimes, there'd be a summary of what the letter is going to be about, a greeting and a prayer. And dear folks, as we study the Gospel of Romans, I want to call it that because it is the most thorough explanation 
to the person and work of Jesus, to the gospel. And I hope these truths will be some, some kind of guardrails for us as we study this book. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word, both the Old and New Testament. We praise you for the promises that have been kept. You're faithful. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray now as we preach the gospel to one another in this ordinance until he comes back to rule and reign forever, that we would pause and reflect and rejoice and repent as we participate in this special moment that you've given your church, Lord's Supper. Thank you for this gift of grace. We pray that you would help us to press deeper into the gospel, to press deeper into savoring your son Jesus as we study this wonderful letter from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.